This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Campbell McGrath is among South Florida's most revered poets. Recognized with the MacArthur Genius Award, a Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, and by admirers from Robert Pinsky to Elizabeth Alexander. His newest collection is Fever of Unknown Origin. And on this edition of The Literary Life, we celebrate its publication with a reading at the Carl Gables location of Books and Books. Introducing Campbell is P. Scott Cunningham, Executive and Artistic Director of O Miami, Miami's very own organization which is building community around the power of poetry. Um, good evening. Welcome to Books and Books. Uh, my name's Scott. I am not a Books and Books employee. Um, I'm the Director of O Miami Poetry Festival. Um, oh, thanks. Um, but obviously, this is uh, this is the temple not only of poetry but every other genre here in Miami. So uh, welcome, uh, thanks for being here with us tonight. Um, and uh, it's my job tonight to intro our reader tonight, Campbell McGrath, and to celebrate his newest book of poems, uh, "Fever of Unknown Origin," which is susurrating right behind me. Um, so the, this is uh, this is Campbell's twelfth book of poems. Um, some other facts about Campbell: He's the Philip and Patricia Frost Professor of Creative Writing and a professor of English at FIU, and the author of most most recently before this, Nouns and Verbs: New and Selected Poems. He's won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, a MacArthur Genius Grant, a Guggenheim Fellowship. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer, many other things that you can Google yourself. In my humble opinion, he's the best poetry teacher in the world. So I asked my, uh, I have three kids. Um, I have a one-year-old who I couldn't ask anything because he can't reply. Um, but I asked the other two, uh, why do you love Campbell? And the three-year-old said, he has two bathrooms. <laughs> Which is true. He does have two bathrooms. And then immediately after, I asked the six-year-old, why do you love Campbell? And she said, he always leaves the toilet seat open. Which, I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't sound factual, because she hasn't been around enough to really know. Uh, but anyway, so um, please welcome a man who leaves the poetic toilet seat open for all of us, Campbell McGrath. It is a great, great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Mitchell in absentia. I know he's going to his niece, niece's college uh, graduation. Rochelle is here, however, and so many friends and colleagues and community members. 
It is, I guess I moved here shortly before my, 30 years ago, and I had written one book by then, so that book I didn't read from at Books and Books, but every other one I have. Uh, on the beach for many years, and now down here, of course, and it is always like the, uh, it's not just opening night for the latest book, it's just like my favorite, you know, event of whatever else transpires in the history of any given book. So I'm really delighted to be here. Um, so I'm going to read you some poems and then, you know, leave time for questions and discussion, of course. And uh, that's it. Without further ado, thanks to everyone for being here. I'm going to start with one poem from my previous book. I'd like to go back one and then I'll end with a poem from the next book that's not out yet, but mostly in the middle we'll stick to... Uh, to the book, the book that's in hand. And this is a short poem that is a, almost as if it was written to be read opening a poetry reading. It's called Saying No. No, sir, absolutely not. Sorry, but no. Not sorry, actually, just no. Keep it simple, plain vanilla. Nope, not happening. Big N, big O. No way, no how. Negative, nuh -uh. Ixnay, niet. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Not likely, not likely. Maybe, but I doubt it. Possibly, conceivably, in theory. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, sure. Okay, why not? Oh, definitely. Yes, wow. I mean, anything, anything at all. When can we begin? So that's the last one, which, since it was a new and selected, is actually a very <coughs> accumulative last one. Um, and this book <coughs> has been kicking around, I mean, being worked on for any number of years, and um, is a book of poems. I have no other actual overarching great wisdom to give you about it. It's, you know, I've been told by certain early readers it may be a more mortality and age-focused book than some I wrote, but then again, I was 25 when I wrote some of those books, and I no longer am. Um, and it's called Fever of Unknown Origin, behind which lies a story also. We'll get to that in the middle. So the first poem in the book is the first poem I'm going to read, and it's called Ode to History. At the crossroads, I am lost, and pull the car over and get out. Farms as far as the eye can see, Fields of vegetables in brilliant sunlight. No matter how hard I try, I will never create anything as beautiful as this ripple of water cupped in a purple cabbage leaf. Hidden in the ditch is a puddle full of ducklings, 14 or 15 of them, surrounding their wide-eyed mother, while yards away, motionless and imperturbable, stands the great blue heron that would snatch them in an instant. Always the same question, an equation of what is and what may be against what has been lost. Is it worth the cost? Will it be? How could it ever not be? Carefully embossed documents, Maps imbued with ancient ink, chronicles and archives. The past is paper, and the present a match, igniting what fires will come. 
Thank you. Thank you. No, we don't need to do that. That's... This book's constructed around a, real, a series of five very long poems. They're not ideal for reading in such a situation like this, so I'm not going to do that. Um, and some of them I've read in Greater Miami before, and I'm sure you know, some of you may have heard them. So I'm going to read some of the shorter poems, focus on those, and then I'll excerpt the longest title poem in the, in the middle. This is a little poem called Night and Day. Day is as simple as the body. Night is like the mind. Day is water, night is wine. Day is a flock of sparrows, night is an owl. Day is a consonant, night is a vowel. Night is the sacred cat of the Egyptians, day is a dog, any old dog. Night is salt in the day's wide ocean, day is bread, night is fog. This is a little poem that I'm reading. Thank you. Yeah, we, don't, we don't have to do that. We can do, we'll, yeah, we can save that. We don't need to worry about that. Um, this is a poem called Burning the Ships, and I'm reading this in honor of my children. I guess this refers to my birth of my older son, Sam, although it's a bit of a cautionary tale, Frank, frankly. When Cortez, the conquistador, landed with his invading army to conquer Mexico, he, the first thing he did, since it was obviously a lunatic idea, was to burn the ships on the beach so the men realized, oh, that's it, we had no choice. <laughs> so this is called Burning the Ships. Burning the ships on the beach, as Cortez did after disembarking upon the shore of that savagely flowered mysterium, made evident to his wide-eyed men that this new world was theirs for the taking and retreat was not an option. No matter the brilliance of the hummingbirds, no matter how shocking the enemy with their poison darts and imprecations, much like my own urgent whisperings to our newborn son that first morning in Chicago, welcome and there is no going back. <laughs> This is a poem called The Unbroken Figure, which is a quote from Rilke. Um, I love this little quote. What we've relinquished circles, and though we are rarely a center of these orbits, they trace around us the unbroken figure. Rilke's an amazing poet of like deep kind of echoing spiritual mysteries, and that, that figure is really interesting. So The Unbroken Figure, a kind of mythic poem. Why perpetuate myths about fig leaves and apples when we ourselves are the garden and the serpent's tongue and the unforgiving God and the naked bodies we have no choice as with the knowledge that would clothe them in reverent obscurity but to desire? What calls us here? What carries us across the threshold into existence? What breathes life into a handful of dirt and casts it staggering along the orbit of its fate? Maybe the sun has a message for me after all, a message written in silver intaglio long after the molten gold of midday fades. I stand abased before its annunciation, this light that carries itself like a herald from the king, acknowledging its command to waste nothing, never to misstrike the chisel, 
to make of each rough block some essential shape, of each page a poem fateful as a star. Make it beautiful and true, that's all, that's all. I've done what I can. Take these words, plant them, and tell me if an apple tree grows there. Thanks very much. So I'm going to read you an excerpted version of the longest poem in the book, the title poem in the book, Fear of Unknown Origin. It's in nine long sections. You're only going to hear three of them. Um, Fever of Unknown Origin is an actual medical diagnosis you can receive and is a very unhelpful diagnosis. You'll immediately, you'll immediately recognize. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, this poem is very... Uh, there's a lot big, large irony to it now because I suffered this I, I suffered from a long-term three-month fever and illness about you know nine months before COVID sprang on the world so I had kind of gone through my personal version of it and then the whole world experienced this much larger fever of unknown origin so I'd been thinking about illness and inwardness and all the things that disease does to you and then the whole world had it it was so it was a, it was a strange resonance for me so the poem's called fever of unknown origin it's Set in University of Miami Hospital, I guess, is the bottom line. And I'll read you again, just three sections. It's a very much based in Miami. Time out. So I suffered from fever of unknown origin. And then a few months later, probably as a kind of continuation or aftermath, I suffered from uh, blindness in my right eye. My right eye would just go blind periodically. And then it would come back on. Like, again, like the cable connection in your TV was loose and it kind of went in and out. And it was very puzzling. So this is more related to both of those. Fever of unknown origin. A storm of buzzards is circling outside the window of my hospital room, looking south and east across the river toward the high-rise construction cranes downtown. They are a regular sight in December, buzzards migrating in particulate vortices, slow-moving gyres that resemble, from a distance, glassless, black-feathered snow globes. Satin-hemmed sheets of cloud shuttle across the sky, diffuse silver light alternating with bursts of Florida sun, the occasional spatter of raindrops from a string of unseasonable storms parading up from the gulf. Cars composing a stop-and-go stream of metal parallel to the river. Small Caribbean freighters docked along caissides of cabbage palms and crab traps. I can see it all with great clarity. The birds, the traffic, it's effortless. The doctor in the eye clinic spoke enviously of my vision, better than 2020, even at my rapidly advancing middle age. The bad news is that I am periodically blind in one of those otherwise excellent eyes, which flickers between darkness and light, like poorly connected cable TV. It's terrifying, that darkness, enveloping, confounding. Immediately, all thought flows toward the remaining eye. May it never falter, dear Lord. May it guide me through the corridors of your mansion forever and ever, amen. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, but I have never envied royalty. I am a Democrat, and I want to go home. <laughs> it's two days before Christmas here at the Ho-Ho Hospital. 
and the nurses are antsy for some quality family time. Becky has four girls and a worthless ex-husband. She started nursing school after the divorce at the age of 39, if you can believe it. How to describe the gloominess of the hospital at this season? Little worse than its familiar jaundiced institutional gloom in some ways, but it is more poignantly melancholy. Doors adorned with droopy silver wreaths. A poinsettia dropping its leaves on the brightly sanitized nurse's desk as if it were coming down with something. Every effort at seasonal cheer serves only to clarify its inherent joylessness. Just as all the holiday schmoozing on the ever-running TV sets, the enforced jollity of Toyota Celathon commercials and celebrity chefs baking caramel gingerbread men on the morning show makes us feel more empty-hearted, fearful, and alone. Part three. This is the second illness I've suffered in a year. The first, a siege of fever, cough, night sweats, fatigue that simply would not abate week after week after week. For two months, they scanned and probed and cultured, seeking a culprit while ruling out a hundred maladies of dreadful consequence, which is good, which is wonderful, though uncertainty can itself become a type of illness or a handmaiden to illness. And the enigmatic diagnosis I waited was hardly coined to reassure. Fever of unknown origin. Great name for an album, John said, which is true. Thanks for that, John. <laughs> but mostly when you mention it, people look at you strangely. They ask, is that a real thing? I mean, what is it? There's a scene in one of my favorite Godzilla movies, Destroy All Monsters, or maybe Invasion of Astro Monster, when a gleeful Japanese scientist announces that the mysterious creature just then ravaging Tokyo has finally been identified. He is called Monster X. <laughs> As a big reveal, this leaves a few things to be desired. As scientific information, it is precisely as useful as a diagnosis of fever of unknown origin. Eventually, I began to feel better. The fever faded down, and the infectious disease team finally decoded my cocktail of nastiness, the primary malefactor being a virulent strain of the Coxsackie B enterovirus. Coxsackie, it's a town on the Hudson River, south of Albany where they first identified the illness back in the 1940s. I've seen its bright green exit sign a hundred times, and now it's inked within me, a bastardized Algonquin word, possibly meaning owl's hoot, possibly nothing at all. So much of medicine is translation disguised as insight. You tell the doctor what's wrong with you in English, and she tells you back in Greek, as the joke goes. <laughs> Which is not to say that words can't taste like medicine. Placebo in Latin means I shall be pleasing. Um, it's a long interjection. <clears throat> I'm going to read you one more piece. I'm going to read you one more piece. I'm going to read one more piece of that poem. There's a long parts being skipped. I'm going to read you one last piece of that poem. Eight. Allow me to apologize for my self-absorption. My virus is your virus. Ours is a virulent commonwealth. 
We breed them together, refine them, borrow them from friends and strangers, camels and bats. As my body fights its infection, the global corpus combats our latest invader, retrovirus, Ebola virus, coronavirus. We are besieged, we sicken, we counterattack, we die. But illness leads you inward, away from the tribe, the clan, the calculus of multitudes versus singletons that constitutes American thought. Interiority is a mode of social distancing. Here in the hospital, I am me, alone, a being frightened of its own mechanical failings, like a bystander trapped in a broken elevator. I feel to myself like a construct, a built thing, a city in which I encounter my own bacterial hordes as strangers passing silently through a maze of alleys. I watch my heart pulsing and I do not think, that is me, there beats my engine, I think, ah, skillful machine, as if it were an iPhone. I feel the body's otherness all around me. I compose the urgent letter in its envelope. I carry the scepter in its keep. It is a prison and a vehicle of emancipation, a strong horse. My legs trot and canter. My hair grows unlicensed. My lungs expand and contract automatically. I am me, alone, but how do I happen to be here? What am I, if not my body? Who am I, if not that it? The doctors tell me the many ways I might die, but not how I come to be alive. Existence is a fever of unknown origin, a pandemonium of desires. I want to live, I want to breathe, I want to see as vividly as Vermeer and as broadly as a common fly and as encyclopedically as the mantis shrimp. I want my heart to shake its defiant fist at the sky forever. I want my soul to swell with sorrow as with joy. Most of all, with a desperation that embarrasses me, as if I had been jailed a decade, I want to go home. There's a lot more in that poem, like <clears throat> like witnessing a group of blind men observing a Vermeer exhibit at a gallery in Dublin. It's like, it's just, it's anyway, but it, it would it would have kept us here all night and more. I'm going to read two more poems from this book, and then I'm going to end with a new poem from a book that'll be coming down the pike some point in time. And this <coughs> poem is called Fourteen Thousand Dollar Watch. And I was telling my brother today that actually how I wrote this poem is, the title, $14,000 Watch, came in my head and said, I'm going to write a poem about that. Like, what would be the poem that goes with that title? $14,000 Watch. Got caught staring past the guy three stools down at the bar. And he says, you like it, huh? Flashing his wrist. 14 grand. And I nod, not wanting to say, I was watching shadows flicker across the wall behind him, <laughs> thinking about human suffering. <laughs> All right, one last little poem from this book. See, the book is about suffering. I can tell from all the laughter and suffering and mortality and the, the delights thereof. This poem does, this, makes this, does the same trick of poking fun at that. It's called The Abacus. Our days are numbered, numbered and brief. Time is an abacus. Time is a thief. This life, what a whirlwind, 
a cyclone of grief. Our days are numbered. Well, that's a relief. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that's Fever of Unknown Origin. The next book is a book I've been working on for a long time, like 10 years. Uh, it's about the Atlantic Ocean. It's about the North Atlantic Ocean as an ecological space, a human and historical space with oceanic transport and crossings of all sorts in our history. It's about the weird fact that I live in Miami Beach, a barrier island, most of the year, but the other half of the year I live in a barrier island in New Jersey, both of which are about you know three feet above sea level. And uh, it thinks through, and it's going to be a big historical project book, kind of many aspects of the, o the Atlantic Ocean. Here's one, and the last section of that book is about Florida. And this poem is called Florida Farewell. It's in three little parts. One, if I were a rich and patient man, I would buy up territory in the Poconos and Blue Ridge Mountains and wait as the coastline drowns for the people to arrive. Instead, I'm going down with the ship. Do not mourn our passing. Florida has always preferred, preferred panegyric to elegy. Celebration is our given name. Enjoy our little sensualist's Eden before it slips away. Come touch the elephant. Come to ogle. Come to gawk. But try behind your mirrored eyes to profit from our demise. Build on stilts. Learn to ski. Find your solace elsewhere than the sea. Two, into the ocean. One step, a dive, and then impact, and then transition. What could resemble that unsanctified baptism? Going under, I scream into its otherness, a howl of relinquishment, pure balm. Encountering the incommensurable, swallowed and swaddled, resisted, reimagined, remade. Nothing else in my distinctly secular life has ever whispered in my ear that I was born for an earthly purpose. Nothing else instructs me that we are destined for communion with whatever it is the ocean is or mimes in deepest memory. Three, last part. Still, there are those days, the Gulf Stream strewing its bounty upon the shore, the color of the Atlantic in that gradient of light Celadon and bottle glass and amber, a perfect tincture I will cherish to the end. Yes, Miami has ruined me for any place less wastefully sublime, a future of acru and muted blues. But do not weep for what will be lost. Don't contribute a single teardrop to the flood. Don't bury me in the swamp as the water table rises or scatter my ashes across the sea. Let the ocean come to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, thank you. Um, we have plenty of time, 15 minutes or more, for questions, a conversation about poetry, about these books, about whatever you might have questions about. Um, I'm gonna, if you do ask a question, I'm going to repeat the question so that it gets into the podcast that is being recorded back there. Um, and so let me just ask, who has a, uh, a question of any sort here? Then don't be shy. I'm happy to converse on any topic, those I know about and those I don't, with equal, <laughs> equally delight me. Yes, right there, young man, Trey Roan. Mm -hmm. So instead of writing 
Um, that's a very good question. The question is like, um, one aspect of being a writer is, is the performative aspect. You, you know, you read your work eventually, probably, um, and that actually is a performance. I mean, teaching is performative too. Um, a lot of things we do are kind of performative. I don't know. Maybe there are people in this room that could say if it was true or not that my reading style has changed tremendously. It has changed tremendously, some people are saying. Um, <laughs> And yet I think there is a continuity there. I mean, I, I've always, I've never been like afraid of reading or shy about reading. I'm happy to read. It, to me, it, it is, I, I think the fact that I've now been a teacher, you know, at FIU for 30 years and other places before that, it's the same sense of speaking to an audience about poetry. That, that's what I do for a living and that's what I'm doing here tonight about my own book. I, it's something I'm very happy to do. So, you know, there's many different styles of reading one's own work, and there's not exactly a right way or a wrong way, but I, I do think that you have a, con you know, as when you're writing a poem, you have an implicit contract with your reader. When you're reading, it's a different contract. Like, in your, in your implicit contract when you're writing a poem, you know, maybe the poem's funny, but maybe it's serious. Maybe it's hard to read, maybe it's not. When you're reading your work, you are actually performing in front of a bunch of people who, so picking your most complicated, dense, and tedious poems, which all of us have some of, is I don't think really the right answer in that format. Because we have, you know, we're all here to share the time. My professional life is mostly walking around inside my own head. You know, just the empty corridors, like reciting words to myself. It's, you know, it's again, it's a good thing that art, most of the things artists do, they would put you in asylum for if you weren't doing it in pursuit of art, right? But, you know, since it's about art, it's, it's kind of all's forgiven. Um, so you, it is totally, totally essential, and you'll never meet a poet who won't agree that at, some, at one of the key stages in writing a poem, developing a poem, is standing up and reading it to yourself in the room and saying, what did I just hear? Was it good? Another stage is, however, reading it to other people for the first time. That, because, you know, you can still, you're still trying to gauge yourself. It's still always complicated, even though you get better at it over time. But you can, you know, hearing an audience is super informative. Like, Ooh, I guess that one was a little flat, or this happened, or that happened. So it's a key part of it, and that's what makes poetry different from all the other great forms of writing, is that the oral tradition kind of is essential part of it. Yeah, humor was always important to me. Like, I can remember my father, who is here tonight, saying, like, you know, on an occasion, like, you know, Groucho Marx died. Like, we all move up one notch. That, that, <laughs> that kind of notion, you know, um, or whatever, as the case may be. So, yeah, my family's always been funny. or like, you know, joking around. But as a poet, it was unusual. Like, Denise and I were, you know, writing at the same age and stage, and it, you weren't supposed to be funny. It was like, oh, those funny poets, there's something wrong with them. They don't, don't they know how serious this is, you know? It's like, okay, you know, maybe it is, art is serious in some senses, but that doesn't mean it can't be humorous, entertaining, delightful. Delight is at the core of art, if you ask me. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, Rilke's sense of deep spiritual, any kind of delight. So I've always, been funny, and I think what what event you know I've always liked being funny and joking around. It's just funny and entertaining to me. It took me a while to understand that should be part of my poetry. You know, like at first I was being told, you know, you write write a sonnet about you know the, this painting in the gallery, and that's more of a thing. But I'm like, it's still I can do that. I don't feel like I'm really expressing myself in the way I would 
And the kind of thing I learned that made me become a really getting it, becoming a good poet was, oh no, my voice, my voice on the page, we talk about voice all the time, has to be my voice, has to represent all of the kind of registers that I'm speaking in to, to really represent me. And that took, you know, that takes tons of practice learning and bouncing back and forth. So, but, and by no means do you have to be funny as a poet, by the way. I mean, it's totally not meant to. I read very dead serious poets all the time. Rilke is one of my two, three favorite poets, and he's, as far as I know, never intentionally funny. <laughs> so, another student said, hey, I asked ChatGP to, to, like, compare one of your poems to Walt Whitman, and he did a very good job. <laughs> <clears throat> it was very good. It understood, it, it, it analyzed my poem pretty well. It got a, had all the comparison points. It was a pretty sound, yeah. I was like, huh, so that's interesting. You know, will it, I'm sure it'll, it'll keep learning many things. Creativity is going to be a very hard leap, I think, for machine learning, but what do I know? I mean, you know, so I, I mean, I think art is, well, I don't know. It, it's obviously a big issue, and of course, in fact, students and people all over the place are using chat GPT instead of their own minds, so maybe, you know, whatever. The title of this book are interesting because uh, I've always known the title of all my books, even while I was writing them, always like, it's this book, it's this book. This is the only book ever I changed the title. And I really did because my editor, Dan Halpern, like really late, I mean, I think it was already in the catalog as the previous title, which was The Radiance Archive, which is still a very good title that I like, a kind of Walter Benjamin-inspired title. But it is, admittedly, two things that I, what I've realized I do is I have very overly deterministic titles. It's like, if it already is that, you don't need to give it the title of that because it's there already. It's like, yeah, but it is that. I should call it that. So my editor was like, didn't you have a couple other titles? And I did. I said, what about this one? This one? He's like, that's the one I like. It's like, like Radiance Archive is too kind of clinical and cold. And I was like, okay, whatever. I don't care. I trust Dan. So I trusted Dan. And this, which is already the title of a poem in the book, became the title of the whole book. So the cover then, I didn't have anything to do with. It's Chip Kidd, who's the most famous book designer alive, designed this. And that was just because Dan knows Chip Kidd. Chip Kidd designed the cover of my second book a million years ago. And he just, you know, I, I was, I, you know, so I, they asked my approval, did I like it? I said, yes, I do, it's very beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful photograph. And he said, and I was reading the email he was sending to the production people, he's like, this is an unaltered photograph. He said, like, I haven't, you know, usually I get in the photos, I mess with them, I change things. He's like, this is just the photograph. I haven't even done anything to it, but to me, it has a kind of, you know, it's glowing. I mean, a lot of images in the book of fire, radiance, light. So I said, I think that, and he, he even cited that, that the fever unknown origin starts with buzzards circling, that there's birds at a few places. I'm like, listen, it's a beautiful, let's go. This book, this book really has like five long poems in it. Long, like as in from like, you know, four manuscript pages to like six or seven. So they, I kind of like staked them out kind of and said, they need to appear in this order. This should be the first one. This should be the second one. Uh, you know, the fever of unknown origin should be in the middle. So I could use those as like tent poles. Then there's also this very long haiku sequence in the book, which I didn't read or talk about. Um, it's a whole section of the book. So then I ended up, I did, I had different kinds of structures. And I finally ended up, it's in like five parts. There's two sections that are just a single poem, fever of unknown origin and this haiku sequence, and then the others fell into these three pieces. But as you know, you can juggle your book around anyways. It's one of my very favorite parts of writing and thinking about writing is making the book and then tearing it down and remaking the book and then trying, well, what about this structure? And eventually you hit one that you think is right and or is the best you can do. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, there could be another version of this book, and it would probably be could good, you know, as good. But this is what I came up with. You know, I mean, sometimes poets will like put all the poets in there alphabetically, like defying the notion that it matters. And I think those are those are kind of acts of you know pretense. I mean, I know, I know, you know whatever. When you're starting out, you're just writing one book. It's your first book. You know, <clears throat> you got to do that. When I was still a young writer, Yusef Kumunyaka was the first person who told me this. He's a great American poet. He came to talk. He actually came. Was actually at FIU, I think. He came down here a million years ago. When I, you know, um, we asked him about his books because his books are very different. And we said, you know, how did you write? And he said, like, well, at a certain point, he was living in New Orleans. And he said he was writing some poems about Vietnam. He'd been in the Vietnam War. Some poems about his childhood. Some poems about like art or whatever. And he literally set three different workstations up in the house. Like I had a typewriter in this room. And I had a typewriter over here and a thing here. And it's like if it's like oh it's a Vietnam poem, I went in that room, you know, and I typed it up and I put it on the pile and I didn't worry about it. If it was this kind, I did it over here. And he said my next book was going to be whichever pile you know filled up next. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, we were all, you know, young people listening, like, this is incredible, wow, what? that's amazing. But as part of that is like age and stage, you have a couple books out in the world, you're established, so you can take the kind of time to say, I'm writing three at the same time and whatever gets to the top first. So, you know, this book, um, so I've been working knowing it was a book about this Atlantic Ocean book for a long time, but it's so big and has so many pieces, it's, gonna take, it's still going to take another year or two, I think, to get wrangle into shape. But at a certain point, it's like, but I have all these other poems, because not every day the poem that comes in your mind fits your theme or what you're working on. But these other poems, and I said, oh, at a certain point, they seem to me to start to cohere, or say, like, I think I see how these long poems talk to each other. They're kind of like Coleridgean conversation poems. They, they kind of thing. I think that there's a beginning of a manuscript there. So I started to make this, the Radiance Archive, another kind of project that I had going. And then it, it got closer and I found all the pieces and I said, no, that's the next book. And I kind of put aside the Atlantic Ocean book and said, I'm really going to try to focus on this, get this done. Although you can't quite control that because the day you want to finish this book, a poem by the Atlantic Ocean comes in your mind and you got to sit down and write that poem. Because again, one of my very few absolute lessons is if the muse offers you a poem, you have to write it. You can't say, oh, no, no, I'm doing this other thing today, because then the muse may never come back and offer you another gift. So you need to do the work. If a poem shows up in your head, it's your responsibility to get that poem down, whether it's what you felt like doing or wanted to do or not. And eventually the book, I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I could, you know, I, I could take 10 years to write my next book if I needed to. It's not important, but I like, I like writing books, so I do want to keep them moving. And, you know, some of these, again, are on the far horizon are just taking shape, and some are close and building. So it's going to depend, in other words, on the set of poems. The moment comes, and you say, I think that's it. I'll read a couple haiku. That, that's great. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll read a couple haiku and end on those. There are, you know, I have written, I've been, uh, I've been writing a lot. Of, I write lots of haiku. I think writing haiku is an incredible practice for a writer. It's like, to me, it's exactly like if you know a really good photographer, they always have their camera with them, and it's, and it's like anything that comes to mind. Having, you know, a notebook in your pocket and writing haiku is, for me, that kind of work. Most of these are set in Baltimore um, or in the Northeast, and they kind of make like a sequence, but I'm looking, looking for some that uh, jump out at me. Right near the end, there's some I know that kind of might speak for themselves. Okay, I'll read, the, I'll read the last page of it. So here's six haiku, They're, you know, which are three-line poems, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. They're very small. 
Opening a can of sardines without a key, the wind in the reeds. <laughs> too hot and too cold, April seed wings cascading into my teacup. Ungardening, so the mind grows out of itself all thorns and blossoms. Old bleached out bamboo on the woodpile, I'm reading Basho in May sun. Wine and peonies against time's ruin, this brief intoxication. And the last one is, beneath the beech tree in the backyard, the black dog running in circles. The black dog, which is my sister-in-law's dog, is a feature in these poems, and I walk it around the hill a lot in these poems. So, so haiku are a great little practice form. They're like photographs, you know, they're, they're, they're lovely to write, um, and I keep learning from them, and I keep enjoying writing them. So thank you, everybody, for being here, for questions. And thank you.